Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Oh, I think I'll start the beginning of what's going to be an erratic uh, continuing series, the unfinished story of the uh, Morehouse Common Spirit Dominican Family Practice Residency. Yes, my friends, we are going to have a family practice residency in Santa Cruz. It'll be based at Dominican Hospital and at Watsonville Community Hospital. It will uh, have the students or residents, I should say, they're not students anymore. They are postgraduate students studying well, effectively at the le- at the level of uh, beyond PhD. So they're postdocs and they are learning how to do hands and bolts medicine, both hospital and clinic. Yes, it's going to be fun to teach them. And the clinics in question are Salud para la Gente in uh, the Watsonville area and the Santa Cruz Healthcare Center in the Live Oak area. And we'll also have some involvement by some of the public health clinics because we want to get everybody involved. So let me set up a little bit about the why of this program. Anyone who's been looking at the timetable of the ages of our physicians in this town realizes that a lot of people are going to be retiring soon. COVID led to a great retirement on the part of physicians and nurses who were 50 years old and above, and that has created a real resource crunch in medicine. I'm sure you've noticed it takes longer to get a phone call. It takes much longer to get an appointment. And as for a specialty visit, well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's not really, it's like one of those big box stores where there are long lines everywhere and you're trying to figure out where the line might be shorter and you Keep looking, okay, is it going to be better over the hill? Is it going to be better down in the next county? And the answer is not really, because it is a global worker shortage. And like I said, the Democratic Oracle doesn't lie. A lot of a lot more people are going to be hitting the age where they need more medical care at the same time that a lot of the people delivering it are going to be exiting the business. It's going to take... 10 or 15 years for this to get really bad, which is why we are working very hard. Uh, the entire organized medicine, the governments, everybody is looking at how can we make more doctors? How can we train more primary care doctors? Because we've got plenty of specialists. We don't have plenty of specialty nurses, but we've got plenty of specialists. What we don't have is the the regular, the regular doctors, the ones you go to, the ones who do continuity of care, the ones that you get to know and who watch your children grow up, all of those things that led me into family medicine, we, we don't, well, we haven't been reimbursing that very well. And God forbid we should talk about how they reimburse geriatrics. So 
as a result, people are choosing to vote with their feet. As the price of living goes up, the cost of being a primary care physician doubles um, at twice the rate of inflation, the money you don't get and the money you now need to spend. We've got to do something about that. But among other things, there are a lot of people out there who want to be family physicians. So we've got a program. We'll be putting eight people in in July, and you might be at your visit to the clinic or the visit to the hospital working with one of those doctors in training. And I think you're going to find it to be as amazing an experience as I'm finding it as I participate in the interview process. Oh, before we go any further with this story, I should let you know I'm on the faculty, not just helping interview, but I will be uh, in, I am the wellness person, and I am going to train these doctors in the approach to the basics of good health care. Just like I talk about it on this program, the three-legged stool that relies on sleep, exercise, and diet, and the importance of social engagement and meaning and how to control your autonomic nervous system and lower the fight and flight and raise the rest and digest, all of this balancing stuff that I talk about all the time on this program, well, they're going to learn that too. And I want to tell you that I have been so impressed with the caliber of the students who have been interviewing for these eight positions. We have over 150 people vying for eight eight positions, and that should make you feel really secure about the people who are going to be taking care of you in this community in the future. I also want to talk about one of the core values of this program, which I think you will be very hard pressed to disagree with. And that is the value of really reaching out to improve diversity in the medical uh, care population, that is to say in the doctors, inclusion, equity, and most important, belonging. We want everyone to feel like they belong in our clinic and that, that we belong to them. Focusing on underrepresented uh, in ethnic groups in medicine is very important to that value. And we really do have a serious mismatch. These are national statistics here, folks. Uh, 7% of the population in California is African American or black. 2%, uh, 2% of the doctors are African American and black. And that's a much better ratio uh, than you're going to see for the other groups. That is to say, almost, you know, almost a third of the black doctors we need. Well, let's talk about uh, Latino doctors. 31% of the population is Latino, probably more in our area, and 6% of MDs nationwide are Latinx or Latino. What about Native Americans? Well, there you've got a 20 to 1 ratio, right? 20 to 1. 1 1.7% of the the population Native American, 0.1% of the the population of doctors 
Native American. And being a good primary care doctor means understanding where your patient is coming from. It means having some level of identification and ability to understand the value set of the person you're talking to. Because believe me, primary care medicine is kind of a sales pitch. You have to to get people to understand what is in it for me, so to speak. What is in it for that individual to make a behavior change? Hey, newsflash, behavior change is hard and the rewards take time. Sustaining behavior change and helping people get there, that's a skill. And that's one of the core primary care skills that you don't see in the other medical specialties. They tell you what to do, show you out the door, and shrug and figure you probably won't do it. And then, you know, write you a new prescription when the current one fails. That's not real healing, is it? So it's really ironic that this push for DEIB, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging, across the board in medicine is coming at a time in the wake of that Supreme Court decision on affirmative action at universities. Now, of course, those were Ivy League elite institutions primarily who were affected by that uh, because the other schools don't have a problem uh, with uh, if you're if you're cheaper and don't have that level of prestige, uh, you can generally let anyone in who's who's qualified and not run into trouble. But that's just an, a side comment, and I don't want to digress. But I do want to talk a little bit about population health and why community involvement of the residency program is so important. Part of it is that. We need our doctors to understand the health needs of the over of the global community, including its its vulnerability points. Recently in Santa Cruz, this is a few years ago, we had a hepatitis we had a hepatitis B outbreak. And this hepatitis B was clustered all along the San Lorenzo River, which if you were a local here, you would say, Well, that's where a whole lot of homeless people are. Yeah, and that's where homeless people Um, sometimes create a poop-to-mouth vector just from it rains, right? And poop in the woods gets washed into the water and the water gets used uh, by people who don't have access to other running water. And lo and behold, we have a little epidemic on our hands. And the community responded well and reached out with hepatitis B vaccines Uh, in areas where homeless congregate, and we were able to protect that population. And I just want to say, the one good argument that I hear from anti-vaxxers, and it is the one good argument that I hear, I will say, is that, well, you know, in history, it wasn't vaccination that turned around the infectious disease and the high infant mortality rates that we saw in the 1890s and the the 1900s, but improvements in sanitation. And yes, that was a major factor in the improved infant mortality. That was, I disagree that it's one or the other. This is not a binary. A lot of things happened that improved public health, but vaccination is key for many diseases. Tetanus 
for example, is in the soil. And vaccination against tetanus is the way that you avoid getting tetanus, which can be lethal and often is. So let's keep a let's keep a sane uh, brain in our head when it comes to these highly polarized issue. So I want to tell a couple of stories. First of all, during COVID, the social determinants of health were up there front and center. You could look at the skin color of the people who were delivering your purchases from Amazon and FedEx, and you could see how hard they were working, and you could realize that they were a lifeline. The people who were powering our system were the people in these uh delivery and service jobs that do not require adva- you know advanced education for the most part and in the communities that feed us like the entire well this entire county is an agricultural county and it and the people who pick that food and harvest that food and plant that food are largely from marginalized communities okay that's the setup Santa Cruz County did really, really well in terms of outreach to those marginalized communities, all of them, including the homeless community. They did an excellent job because they made a point of doing it, because they recognized that to control an epidemic, everyone needs to be vaccinated. You can't do it by just vaccinating one subgroup of privileged people. You need to vaccinate Literally, the people who are delivering the food to the privileged people, if you're, you know, it's a it's a self-interest thing. Even if you are the most elitist person on the block, you got to recognize the person who's coughing, who has tuberculosis, is going to give you tuberculosis. It would be so much better if no one who was coughing in the vicinity uh, of you had tuberculosis. So let's let's cure everybody's tuberculosis. And we actually, the public health uh, Department of Santa Cruz got a national award for how well we did with our outreach, coordinating with the growers, coordinating with the uh, farm workers' rights organizations, and getting information and vaccines out to where it belonged. I'm proud of this. And another thing I'm proud of is in the Lightning Complex fire. 42,000 people were evacuated out of the San Lorenzo Valley. And, you know, even parts of Scotts Valley were evacuated. It was a massive, massive load on the community to find uh, places, literally, for people to park and pitch a tent and get food to them and get medication to them and get health care to them. And this community really stepped forward. And I want to give a shout out in particular to the coordination of the churches. The churches had it together. They shared resources. They shared information. They redistributed things. Uh, some churches had more, and they, it was a loaves and fishes movement, and it was beautiful to see. And we have another resource, UCSC, stepping forward to do testing. A lot of the COVID testing that, that we were doing here was going up to UCSC because they had figured out how to do the reagents and how to do the uh, polymerase chain reaction testing. 
So kudos to them as well. The social service organizations functioned well. The advocacy organizations worked together. There was, it, it was really a thing of beauty. I mean, the sunsets were pretty too, but most importantly, we saw a community that knows how to work together. And I was very proud. And I'm excited because I want to show that off. I want to show these residents when they come what can be built with local power, what can be built with community cooperation and people power and communication and participation. I believe doctors are needed as political advocates. I think they have high credibility with the man. I think they have high credibility with academics. And I think they have high credibility with people as long as they listen before they start giving doctors orders. I want to let my residents be embedded in their communities so that they can gain the skills to lead and unite communities that, that they'll be serving in the future. And we need your help for that. So I want to encourage any of you who are part of any communi- community organization, sometime in the next year, you're going to get an outreach and you're going to get an outreach from this residency program and don't just throw it in the to be done sometime respond right away we want to hear from you we want to figure we're still building our structure man we're driving down the freeway and we're you know building the car but we want to make this a true community effort and we want to involve the residency in the community we want to be a value to you and we know that you can be a value to us so keep your ears open because you'll be hearing from us and you'll be hearing from me about how you can help us make our community even stronger with these young new doctors so let's move on to our next topic i'm going to be highlighting Uh, psychedelics, some of the science behind psychedelic therapy uh, this week. And we're going to start with just a little bit of a review and then get into how these drugs work, what we know about them, and then some special research that's being done uh, at the newly launched Institute for Psychedelics and Neurotherapeutics uh, at my alma mater, my Uh, medical school, UC Davis, where I am a proud, very proud alumnus, alumna, uh, I guess, if I've got my, or is that the plural? I I think it's alumnus. (laughs) Uh, Yes, my Latin. Never did learn it. So psychedelic drugs have been really undergoing an image makeover in psychiatry. Uh, They were on the path back in the 50s and 60s to actually being mainstream drugs for depression. And then the 60s happened. And, you know, Timothy Leary and uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, they were, well, they politicized it. Actually, it's, you know, when when you take something that's science, oh, like vaccines, and you politicize it, you get backlash. And they got backlash from the man in spades. And unfortunately, a bunch of promising drugs were delayed in their development for over 50 years. And a lot of, a lot of stuff happened in the 60s. And this was one of the less good things, really, the backlash and the elite in the, uh, the, 
making illegal, the banning effectively, by the FDA of all of these agents. Well, in 2019, the sun began to rise again on uh, psychedelics and psychiatry when the FDA uh, approved a variant of ketamine, escaloketamine, uh, for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Then in May of this year, Oregon opened its first treatment center for administering psilocybin, which is an hallucinogenic compound found in magic mushrooms. Uh, So now it's officially a treatment center. The state legalized psilocybin. It's still illegal at the federal level. So just like marijuana, we have an interesting patchwork quilt uh, in this country on the subject of psychedelics. There is a effort in San Jose, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychiatric Studies, MAPS, and they uh, formally created enough data to approach the FDA and ask for approval to market um, MDMA as an actual treatment for PSTD. Marketing allows insurance to cover it. And that's key when you're talking about scaling up a drug therapy of any kind. Two large trials have shown that MDMA can reduce the symptoms of PTSD when administered in controlled therapy sessions. And it also seems to do it much more quickly than other treatments. But we're still trying to understand how they work And part of that's because it's really hard to study psychiatric conditions in animals because you can't ask them questions about what they're thinking and their behavior. Well, it doesn't always give you much of a clue. But you don't really need to know the mechanism of the drug to have a very effective therapy, says David Olson, a biochemist at the University of California Davis, who is one of the heads of the new psychedelic research and neuroplasticity research thing, and more about his research a little bit later in this discussion. But understanding about how psychedelics work, what they do and don't do, could lead to the development of proprietary drugs that are safer, less hallucinogenic, and ultimately more effective. So, Let's let's go back and do a little terminology here. What is a psychedelic? Well, indigenous cultures around the world have long used naturally occurring drugs. Uh, the Oracle of Delphi, a classic historic tradition, she was a she was drugged out on psychedelics. She was smelling burning, I don't know what the drug was, I'm not sure it even still exists, but they were based, she was basically breathing smoke and then predicting the future, speaking, you know, channeling the the, uh, god Apollo, as far as the people in ancient Greece were concerned, and giving ambiguous oracular advice. Uh, Oracles have long since, it's, the, the word has meant something that predicts the future, but does it in potentially ambiguous ways just like an acid trip. So psilocybin, peyote, which is obviously from a cactus, I think, ibogaine, which is from the bark of a central African shrub, these are all used in indigenous cultures to promote connectedness and open minds. Ashwagandha is another one. And 
because of our freedom of religion, one of the ways that you can experience these things uh, with sort of outside of the law, but within uh, the embrace of a church and therefore protected from prosecution, uh, that's been a very, very interesting little tax loophole, if you will, that has that exists currently. And I have a number of patients who participate in churches for the purposes of gaining psychological enlightenment, but who are also using uh, psychoactive substances to do it as a form of worship. This is where they got the idea of using them for psychiatry in the 1950s and 60s. And I've already mentioned how that got torpedoed by the by the their cultural revolution back then. But it's the early 2000s when we start seeing some research, first ketamine and then MDNA. And so what is a psychedelic? It's a hallucinogen. Well, psilocybin LSD. These drugs bind to the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor that's found on the surfaces of neurons. But ketamine and ibogaine don't do that. Uh, they're thought of as alike, and some people even classify uh, high-dose THC as a psychedelic. So this has created problems for us scientifically. But here's what we can say in general about this broad group. If we're going to rope in ketamine and MDMA, we can say that these are not just drugs directed at a single receptor site. They interact with many different types of neurons and many different types of molecules across the brain. Uh, LSD and psilocybin interact with numerous other receptors besides uh, 5-HT2A, which is the one that's most studied. And as far as ketamine is concerned, it's even more mysterious. It binds to and blocks the NMDA receptor, which is an, a glutamine receptor, an excitatory channel on the surface of neurons that's deeply tied to forming new connections. Uh, but MDN, MD, MN, excuse me, NMDA receptors uh, can also uh, affect depression. It's also possible that it's not ketamine itself, but one of its breakdown products, one of its metabolites that causes the antidepressant effects that have been seen. And a study that came out in Nature in October found that ketamine actually can become trapped inside the NMDA receptor and suppress activity in certain brain regions for up to 24 hours. And that's long enough for Neuro, for synaptic changes to occur, which would then cause it to be permanent. Once you've suppressed that activity for long enough, you actually change the wiring. So that's super interesting. And ketamine, psilocybin, most of the psychedelics all bind to a receptor for a brain signaling factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. You hear me talk about BDNF all the time. It's one of the reasons why exercise helps you preserve your brain function as you age. It's also a reason why exercise makes you feel good. And 
exercising, if you exercise regularly when you're trying to learn things, if you walk while you're trying to memorize, you do a better job of memorizing. And that's been studied and established. Turns out some of uh, things like Prozac bind this receptor too, the BDNF receptor, but the binding is a thousand times stronger for the psychedelics. That's why they work so quickly, maybe why they work so quickly. Not everyone thinks that's the key. And then we get into this neuroplasticity concept. So all neuroplasticity is not good. For example, conditions like autism and schizophrenia may actually result from too much neuroplasticity in the brain. In other words, the connections don't hold like they should. What we're really after is homeostatic plasticity that allows the neurons to restabilize after factors come in that try to change them. So ketamine might work by stabilizing that homeostatic homeostatic mechanism in the brain. In a paper that came out in June, uh, a group headed by Gul Dolan, I'm sorry, I really know I'm, bur- I, I am really bad with umlauts, Gul, Gul, Gul Dolan, uh, sorry, laugh your head off if you speak German. Anyway, uh, Dolan's group gave MDMA, Ibogaine, LSD, ketamine, or psilocybin to, uh, to mice, these are grown-up mice, when they were in the company of other mice. And the treated mice became more willing to sleep in a compartment with strangers. And that effect lasted for weeks. Now, adult mice generally don't like to fall asleep in a compartment with strange mice. They, If they've grown up in, with, in a cage, those are their cage buddies. They can go to sleep with their cage buddies around, but these strange strangers, they are not cage buddies but it apparently turns strangers into cage buddies, which kind of makes sense, at least if you realize that MDMA is ecstasy, so-called sometimes the love drug. Uh, Derlin thinks that this drug reopens the critical period when mice are young and they learn to uh, associate sociality with good feelings, when they learn, in other words, to love their cage mates. So... They looked at their neurons, and they found that what was really going on, I do find this fascinating, was that a collection of genes were awakened that are involved in remodeling the protein network outside of the neurons, this extracellular matrix, which we're always talking about in acupuncture. Well, this matrix kind of is what is the space between, the negative space uh, between the neurons, and breaking it down, dissolving it literally, frees up the things that glue the synapses in place and allows the dendrites and the axons to form new connections. In other words, oh, now these strangers are also my cage mates. So opening a critical period like this could really be key for recovery from neurological injury, for example. Think about being able to open up this rewiring in the motor cortex after a stroke. This might lengthen the amount of time in which people who've had strokes can benefit from physical therapy. It might allow them to use undamaged areas of their brain and literally rewire them to control the hand. We know that happens anyway, but 
they might help people who've lost or impaired, have lost senses or have impaired senses. Uh, we might be able to create like a vibrant acoustical space in people who've lost an eye so that they can have that that sort of ability to navigate by hearing that blind people who have been blind from birth have. Their brains wire differently, and they use the our spatial capacity to identify sound is much more developed in such individuals. We might even be able to take a pill when we're trying to learn a new language. I would love that. But when you're in when you start thinking about this altered state that a hallucinogen induces it invites different ways of thinking about things different ways of processing and there's a group at mount sinai led by Ra- rachel yahuda who's studi- studying the use of mdma and psilocybin in people with pd ptsd uh they found that chemical treatment that this psychedelic treatment actually changes the epigenetics of the genes in the neurons. And what it affects is it affects the same areas that prolonged psychotherapy affects because we can shift the epigenetics with psychotherapy. It just takes a long time and it's really expensive. Uh, Olson's lab also found that ibogaine and other drugs can uh, increase neuroplasticity and decrease drug-seeking behavior in, and depression in mice uh, by inducing this kind of neuronal gro- growth. But, oh boy, trying to do this in humans. First of all, you've got the informed consent, and they uh, then you've got the placebo. So these drugs, these studies, have an enormous placebo effect because the recipients want it to work. So it works because their brains decide that it should work, and so it does which makes it really hard to get a study. Uh, FDA actually approved recently a system for MDMA trials in which the psychiatrists who are not involved in, in administering the therapy, because the therapy itself is going on while you're on the drug, they evaluate the improvement and score whether a person has improved without knowing whether they took the drug. The drug. And they did this because... You can't conceal um, the treatment status from the participants and the physicians administering the drugs uh, during the trials. It's obvious you can't blind the physicians, so they have to find another set of physicians and blind them in order to achieve the blinding that's necessary to filter out the placebo effect. Uh, another, uh, another way around the placebo effect that a doctor named Hafitz did, uh, I thought, well, this is... It, uh, this is creative. It was only posted online as a preprint. I do not know if it ever got published and was not able to find it uh, in a lateral search. But his team tested ketamine in people undergoing surgery who were put under anesthesia. So therefore, if you're already, if you're under anesthesia and you have and you're dripping, you don't know you were dripping. But if it does in fact improve plasticity, that shouldn't matter. So patients coming out of surgery in this initial studies uh, will often feel depressed, uh, worsening depression if they have depression uh, in the first place going in. Uh, research has found that, in, on the contrary, the if you had received ketamine, uh, your symptoms improved post uh, post surgically. So 
it raises the question of whether or not the whether or or not you need to be conscious during your trip to actually get the benefit. And, you know, we could get into animal consciousness, but we're not going to go there tonight. Uh, let me take a moment and wrap this up just to uh, tell you about two drugs that have come out of Olson's lab at uh, UC Davis because uh, they've uh, been focusing on looking for new molecules that are shaped like the psychedelics. And now we have AI that will do drug search and you can say, okay, what's it look like? What, where is it interacting? Let's look for other molecules that look like this in terms of how they interact with the receptor sites. So they found this one uh, molecule. It's, they're calling it tabernanthalog, TBG. It produces sustained and rapid anti-addictive effects in rodent models of heroin and alcohol uh, self-administration. So now they're trying to understand how that works, and they're going to use this high-throughput strategy uh, with AI that I've already talked about in previous programs, and then do animal testing. Uh, And they're, of course, already in bed and have contracts with a... uh, with, the pharm- with pharmaceutical companies because the new wave in scientific research is we're going to develop uh, these drugs. Uh, Olson's lab in 2020 gave a paper describing the first uh, non-hallucinogenic analog of a psychedelic that promotes neuroplasticity and produced antidepressant and anti-addictive effects in preclinical models. He calls these molecules psychoplastogens, because uh, they uh, have an effect on neurological growth. And serotonin 2A, we talked about that one. Uh, It turns out that the neuroplasticity effect on serotonin OA, why doesn't serotonin do that, right? These are serotonin receptors. Uh, They're on the outside surface of the neurons, why don't we get the same effect with just raising serotonin? How, ca- how does this work, that the hallucinogens behave differently, yet they're using the same receptor? Well, the answer is kind of an interesting chemistry one. It's lipid solubility. So psychedelics work on t- uh, receptor 2A, but they work on the receptor 2A inside this cell. So not the surface receptors that are doing something completely different, but serotonin receptors are found throughout the neuron on the inside. And there they have a completely different effect. They change the DNA and increase neuroplasticity. How is this possible? Well, oil and water don't mix. And serotonin is a polar substance. That means it has lots of of charges on the outside of it. And charges make it able to dissolve really well in water, but it doesn't dissolve in fat. But the walls of the cells are fat. The psychedelics, on the other hand, are lipid-soluble, so they can easily cross into the inside of the neurons and find those, those 2A uh, receptors that are, that are floating around inside the neurons. And... That's where the growth 
promoting effect of these compounds comes from. It comes from a basic chemical difference in being able to access the receptor. And this is really the first time I've seen research talking uh, about the differences in lipid solubility with respect to something like this. And it's making a whole lot of sense that much of the serotonin that we use in our brain is being produced in our gut because then it can climb up. Essentially, it never has to leave the cell. It can climb up the neuron and get to the brain through the vagus nerve, which we know happens. And now that makes more sense to me. Psychological research has had some real black eyes recently. Uh, A number of high-profile failures to reproduce findings. Uh, Well, I have to say that the methodological flaws that have crept into psychological research and experimental psychology uh, do raise issues. And you know I love to point out methodological flaws. So... Recently, a group decided to try and bring its A-game back to experimental psychology. And this was a five-year project involving four research groups. And it just came out in Human Nature Behavior in late 2023. And what it showed that if you do it right, you can replicate original findings 86% of the time. So what they did was they went through and they looked at all of the reasons that people do it wrong and things don't replicate and tried to identify best practices. In fact, I'd say they they applied the aviation model to it. It's like, huh, well, we don't know why that window blew out. We are going to ground all planes with those windows and figure out why it blew out and how not to have it blow out again. So in this study, we had four major labs at U.S. universities. Each lab was doing its own projects, and they had both a pilot phase and a um, full-scale study. So they they did a pilot on their hypothesis, and then if that seemed to show an interesting effect, they did a full-scale confirmatory study with a sample size of 1,500 participants. Now, both of these studies, super important point, were pre-registered, which means the authors specified their uh, plan, their research plan, how they were going to do the statistics, what they were going to measure, and what they were going to report on. And that was what they did. They they said they were going to do it, and they did what they said they were going to do. This is where a lot of chicanery comes. You do your research, you get your data, you do your analysis, and oh, shoot, It's not significant. Okay, let's go back and do, watch for these words when you're reading science, a subgroup analysis. This is where you notice a trend and you trim. You trim out other aspects of the study so that you just look at that subgroup where you thought maybe you had an effect, and then you get statistical significance, and then your paper can be published. So they had four new discoveries that were selected for the the testing phase, And after that, the three other labs each ran a full-scale repeat of each of the four chosen studies, again with the big sample uh, sample size. So they replicated each other's work, and they did it exactly. They used 
the experimental plans, the research plans, the instructional videos for the participants, uh, other relevant educational materials. They not they did the same exact methods, not similar methods, which is what often happens. And after looking at to see if it replicated, they also looked at something called effect size, which is to see whether there's evidence of a decline in, in the strength of a finding. And that usually means that you had a fluke that gave you your your statistical significance, and you didn't get the fluke when you tried to reproduce it. And that's a really important safeguard. And something that often happens in drug development where you you go for those flukes and you don't ever mention the other 10 studies you did where you didn't get a fluke and therefore you didn't get statistical significance. So that's one of the ways you lie with statistics. I'll tell you a famous story about that, uh, and that's vitamin C and cancer. This is going back to the 80s when a guy who you may have heard of named Linus Pauling uh, and the Linus Pauling Institute were looking at cancer, and they found a very strong effect with combining high-dose intravenous vitamin C. And we're talking about levels of vitamin C like 15 to 30 grams of vitamin C. intravenously, which means it hits the system all at once. Like most things in medicine, it's illogical. But when you, vitamin C is an antioxidant, unless you give a massive overdose of it, then it acts as a pro-oxidant. It's an excellent chemotherapy agent, and it's an adjuvant to standard chemotherapy. When you combine the two, it's like the one-two punch in boxing, where you set someone up and then knock them down. It's like the serve in tennis, right? And this double effect, the double whammy of of the two, was extremely effective in these small studies that the Institute was able to fund. But so when you tell that to an oncologist, they will say, oh, yes, but John Hopkins University did a study and they could not replicate the effects of Linus Pauling's study, so therefore that was just a dead end. That was that was that was just a fluke. It's not true. Well, actually, if you go back and you look at the methods of the Johns Hopkins study that everyone talks about, uh, they didn't use intravenous vitamin C. They used oral vitamin C. And oral vitamin C, if you take as much as 10 10 grams of oral vitamin C, you are going to have a lovely bowel prep is what you're going to have. You are going to get a major clean out. And uh, that's just what happens because of the osmotic load of the vitamin C. So it just sucks water into the gut as well as um, Go Lightly does and well, we know where it goes after it gets into the gut. So how could you say that you fail to replicate when you deviate from the experimental protocol that thoroughly? It it's never ceases to amaze me that that little bit of scientific uh, data is not common knowledge. So here's another study. Uh, right on theme with uh, science and uh, vitamins, as far as that goes. 
Uh, let's see. In 2017, there was a major meta-analysis that, sh- that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it shows, uh, and it showed that there was no decline in fracture risk f- with vitamin D plus calcium. And it was a it was a meta analysis means it looked at a bunch of different studies, and came to the conclusion that it didn't work. Now a new meta analysis disagrees with the old one. This new meta analysis uh, from twenty twenty three. No, I'm sorry, this was actually from twenty nineteen. Excuse me. And it was published in JAMA Network Open, but it was not, I think, published. Uh, off, you know, in the journal itself, it was just online, so de- sort of destined to, for obscurity. But here it is: they looked at an eleven randomized controlled st- trials of vitamin D alone. Uh, that's thirty-four thousand participants, and six similar studies of vitamin D plus calcium, fifty thousand participants, with um, with mean follow-ups of three and six years, respectively. Now, I will. Uh, have some points about that three and six years in a minute, so don't forget those numbers. And they were looking at any fracture or hip fracture. What they showed was that 400 to 800 vitamins, units of vitamin D a day and calcium, 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams, showed a 6% reduction for any fracture, and get this, folks, a 16% relative reduction in risk for hip fracture. And that's in three to six years. So there's a critique, because this is actually the New England Journal of Medicine, and they don't want to be wrong. So they go on for a couple of paragraphs to explain that Differences in the two studies. So the new meta-analysis included studies of both community-dwelling and institutional uh, participants and included a large study in which some participants were also randomized to receive estrogen. Think of that. And then they, uh, but the previous study was restricted to community-dwelling participants and included the estrogen cohort. Now, if I were going to do a meta-analysis to show that vitamin D plus calcium didn't work, I would exclude the groups that are going to show the most benefit. And that would be the estrogen cohort and the institutionalized cohort because they're institutionalized. They're not getting any sun. So they are going to be the people who will have the lowest vitamin D levels. Uh, In other words, the previous meta-analysis was set up to show that vitamin D plus calcium didn't work. The second meta-analysis asked the question, does it work? Hmm. Let's look at the pop, let's, let's look at all these good, uh, well-done studies and see. And by including the estrogen group in the group, in the, the institutions, yes, they, in, they increase the probability that it would work, but a 16% relative reduction in risk for health for uh, hip fracture, my friends, that's as good as any of the drugs out there. And that's in three to six years. Let me tell you, wait 10 years, wait 15 years, and then take a look at that cohort. Why are we using a drug criteria of three to six years for a vitamin? And what question are we asking? We're trying to prevent hip fractures in everybody. So why are we excluding the groups that would be most likely to benefit? 
Well, we shouldn't be. In fact, we might want to be specifically looking at institutionalized people on and uh, getting these and estrogen and seeing what those hip fracture rates look like. Because this isn't a drug. You can't patent it. There's no reason to isolate these variables. We're trying to find a medical therapy. And excuse me, I thought that was kind of the goal of of medical research. But, you know, what do I know? So let's talk a little bit about, uh, in the time that's left to us, uh, let's see, we've got a couple of ones. We've been doing addiction. Let's talk about uh, modern weed weed being more addictive. Well, that's about all for this week's uh, podcast. Of Please go rising to AskDrDawn.com uh, for news right? we know about our future plans. The average levels of THC have been follow my going up at, at uh, by an AskDrDawn. For now, up this is a year. Dr. Dawn so saying so long every and three stay healthy. Years. And we're talking about Ask uh, Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva now. Media. So Production yeah, and editing by Charles Mansky. The, the, uh, Music by John Scoville. This study looked at, it was a, a meta-analysis again, looked at 20 studies, over 120,000 marijuana uh, users. They found that those who had been using products with higher levels of THC were much more likely to have experienced episodes of psychosis. Hmm. So maybe at really, really high doses, it actually does act as a hallucinogen uh, and to become addict and much more likely to become addicted. A sevenfold increase in the risk of psychosis. Let's see. And I don't know the time span on there. It doesn't say. But a sevenfold increase in the risk of psychosis, even if it's over 50 years, is pretty substantial. Uh, we know, that, of course, the higher doses of a drug, especially when we... We take the drug away from how it was traditionally used. Let me emphasize, those indigenous people, they, knew, they, they were smart, okay? They were, no, they were not stupid. They were low-tech, but they were not stupid. And they had fabulous memories because often they did not have writing. Now, what that means is they had a good cultural memory because they talked to each other, and they had good lifelong memories, and so you could see how they would already know how not to use these agents and how to best take them safely to achieve the results that they were after. That would be part of the wisdom you'd expect from the indigenous people. So I think about the coca leaf, for example. Now, if you're up there in the Andes and you're carrying, a, you're trudging behind your llama and you've got a big load of stuff uh, and you've got a 16-hour hike to do, yeah, you're going to munch on some coca leaves. And those coca leaves will give you a little extra energy. They have a mild stimulant effect. And then, of course, you can uh, be Sherlock Holmes and be using uh, essentially the actual raw, the alkaloid, which through Victorian chemistry has been derived and you've now got a really strong extract and you can be shooting that up and you're going to turn very hyper and bipolar, which is exactly what you see uh, between the lines when you read the Sherlock Holmes stories. So you can do that with anything. We saw it with, we, we, we see it with cocaine. We see it with this. We see it, God, with fentanyl. When you take a drug that's already, you know, 
think about the progression from the opium poppy to like opium syrup to something that's a concentrate like laudanum, which people did get addicted to. And then we get heroin, which was hugely addictive. And then someone essentially crowds source and, and rapid throughputs to get fentanyl because they want to use it as an anesthetic agent. And then that becomes a drug of abuse. And the stuff is so concentrated and cheap to make that it's now everywhere. Just yesterday, I learned from the coroner that we that 40% of the people who hit the coroner's office, that means unexplained death, in my county, 40% of them died of fentanyl overdose. And that's crazy. Okay, we think of this, we don't think of this as something that's happening in our backyard. But my friends, I'm sorry to say, it really is. So sorry to leave you on a downer note, but you know, sometimes you just got to roll with what's out there and what fits. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or Follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.